I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. And welcome to Spoiler Alert 67. I'm Duncan, and 1967 was the first year that Francis Ford Coppola was nominated for the Palm d'Or for You're a Big Boy Now, about a young man uneasily entering adulthood and rebelling against his parents' wishes. A film that when Mike Nichols saw it, he expressed concern that it had preempted the themes and tones of his own film that he was in the process of making, The Graduate. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. Oh, it's funny you should mention Coppola, eh? Yeah. I, I don't even know why that came There's out. no reason at all. Uh, 67 was also the year that Hammer discovered Roger Vadim's And God Created Woman from 1956, no less. So they're about 11 years late. Nice. But anyway, they repurposed its title, at least, as Frankenstein Created Woman. Uh, and this was born one of my all-time favourite Hammer horrors. Uh, Baron Frankenstein, once again Peter Cushing, this time a coldly detached creator, uh, takes the soul of a recently executed man and puts it into the body of his beloved, who had killed herself in grief. The Baron also makes her beautiful, naturally. And she soon becomes an animated weapon of vengeance, driven perhaps by her haunted memories, or maybe by the soul inhabiting her. Uh, it's also odd and bold and metaphysical, which is kind of unusual for Hammer. Uh, it's apparently a favourite of Scorsese's as well, and, oh. and I can see why. It's a really tonally interesting um, Hammer film. Great. And what was the title of that again? Frankenstein Created Woman. Frankenstein Created Woman. Yeah. Nice title. Uh, which he doesn't really do, really. Does, yeah. But, but that doesn't matter, right? No. Nah. Um, I love the fact that she comes out so beautiful. I mean, she was obviously... A beautiful actress that may look a bit dowdy to begin yeah. with, like she was uh, Susan Denberg. She was a Playboy model, right? After the operation, he, there's a. Gr- uh, I love this line. He goes, mm. and, and and she's blonde now, as you predicted, Baron Frankenstein. <laughs> it's like, well, of course she is. Oh, love that. So, Simon, what haven't you been watching? I guess is the question. We've been away for two months oh, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What have we been up to? What's happened? I mean, anything to report? Well, I got married. Oh, of course, yes. yes. In Italy, and uh, you attended the wedding in yeah. Italy. So oh, it was such an honour. It was a lovely ceremony, man. It was wonderful to have you and uh, your lovely wife, Tony, there. And uh, it was honestly a magical day. It was, yeah. And um, look, we both had interesting trips, I imagine, in different ways. We, we both went different kind of routes to get there and, and, and saw different yeah. cities and locations. And, uh, and of course, we saw a lot of films on the plane, I imagine. Right. Look, the first stage of my travels... Started in Auckland with a 17-hour flight. Uh, that is the longest commercial flight in the world, folks, yep. uh, to Doha. I'm going to say right off the bat, I should have slept more. I really should have. <laughs> but giddy with holiday excitement, I instead dug into five movies and every in-flight meal and drink I could get my paws on. Um, the food on Qatar Air was really good. I had a lovely dinner, a breakfast of, a, of vanilla berry bread pudding, by the way. Oh, man, that was good. Um, there was a movie-watching snack pack you got with uh, dates and crackers and things. And toasted sandwiches for those who are still awake in the middle of the night, which of course included me because I was watching five movies. But I kicked off with High Society, uh, not alas, an upper class stomach tuning sequel to the body horror 80s hurt. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> I know it is. It is. It is. It's perfect. Um, but rather a Crosby, Sinatra, and Grace Kelly musical. Now, I'm old fashioned when it comes to my musicals. I want music and dance. Mm-hmm. And this film didn't deliver on the dancing front. Also, I didn't really like anyone in the film. You know? Oh, right. Uh, the message of the film seemed to be rich people are just fine, decent, misunderstood people. The working class are okay as well. But those who start out poor and work hard to become wealthy, 
They're the worst. Yeah, new money. Literally the worst. (laughs) You know? Ambitious people who rise through the ranks are jerks. Terrible. You you hear that, the 99%? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Stay in your place. Uh, Then I skip past Murder, She Baked, Just Desserts. Uh, The first of what I now know to be several baking slash murder-related mystery films. I'm intrigued that that's a thing. Yeah, Um, it makes sense. Yeah, I didn't watch it, of course. And then went for a rewatch of Star Wars The Force Awakens, a film I'm still disappointed by, I've got to say. Right. Yeah, it still didn't work for me second time out. So that was the second time you watched it? Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's, yeah. It's, well, the first time I obviously saw it in the cinema, and uh, we talked about it at the time, and I thought, you know, I need to give it a rewatch. And mm. it's still, the things that bother me still bother me. Sure. Yeah. Um, next up was The Trip, which on a later flight I followed up with A Trip to Spain. Oh, great. Uh, that's proving, well, the delightful, chuckle-worthy films. Once you've watched one, you very much watch them all. <laughs> that's right. Um, followed by the serviceable, the formulaic, jump-scare, fright film, Lights Out. Okay. Okay. Uh, on the way to and from Italy, uh, I ploughed through The Accountant, the Ben Affleck action film that I kind of swear is a parody of a real action film. <laughs> yeah. The sci-fi horror flick Morgan, which misuses a pretty good cast, including the wonderful Anna Taylor-Joy, mm-hmm. uh, and a largely somber and predictable kind of modern-day Frankenstein myth, before watching the wonderful Hitchcock comedy Mr. and Mrs. Smith, right. which I've never seen before. Um, I love Carol Lombard. Yeah. So I loved her in this, and it has the best drunk but pretending not to be drunk performance I think I've ever seen from Gene <laughs> Raymond. It's Brilliant. just priceless. So eventually, in the middle of a pretty horrible cold, I had the most excruciating flight of my life. Uh, this was the 16-hour return trip from Doha. Uh, in the middle of a row, you know, on the way back, two sleeping pills in me, which mm-hmm. did zero. So um, instead, I managed another movie marathon. <laughs> um, uh, probably the best one of um, my travels, actually, with Spider-Man Homecoming, mm-hmm. which was genuinely involving superhero caper, thanks to having a great hero. And a decent villain, which is something the superhero films mm-hmm. often, often miss out on. And uh, Tom Holland and Michael Keaton. And because they kept the stakes smaller, they weren't trying to save the world, you know, mm. and more believable, and gave the bad guy, like, real plausible and human motivations, it worked so much better for me. Yeah. And it was fun, too, you know. Um, I watched Kitty, the cat documentary, which proved to be catnip for me. <laughs> but then again, you know, it's a cat documentary. Yeah, that's a, that's a bit of a soft selfie. Yeah, thing. it's really easily. And I finally saw... And this has been out for ages, but uh, it's amazing. I've, I only just got to it. Edge of Tomorrow. Right. Which is great. Yeah. And uh, The Big Sick, which was a charming, warm, and f- uh, funny rom-com. Uh, the only downside was Tintin, which was just too much of everything, I felt. Okay. You know, too loud, too busy, too much going mm. on. Um, and, you know, it's impressive. Yeah. But it's just not engaging enough to me because it's too in love with its spectacle. Yeah, I, I remember watching this, um, I think... Uh, probably on Sky Movies, and I think it's one I turned off. Yeah, and I can understand I just, why. And I, and I didn't dislike it. I was just I just was like, you know what, well, I'm not, like you say, I'm not engaged in this. I just checked out. It was just too much going on. And Yeah, uh, yeah. it's not a yeah. film that makes you care for its characters a lot. Yeah. It just throws things at them and throws yeah. them at things. And it, w- it was basically like watching a, watching a video game. It's like watching someone play a video game. Yeah, you know? I, that's not un, inaccurate. Yeah. yeah. What about you? How were your flights and your, and your trips? Well, look, you know, we've both travelled a bit. I'm an experienced traveller, having flown around the world many times. And look, I remember going to Australia when I was 13, and they still had smoking on planes back then. Grim. And uh, they had a large screen that was at the front of the cabin. Yep. They had one film on it, and you had to plug your headphones in. Everyone yep. had to watch the yep. same film. And the one I recall was Polanski's Frantic, starring Harrison Ford. Really? Yeah, so I was 13, and we flew to... To uh, Brisbane, I think. And so, yeah, I remember watching that. Anyway, needless to say, the things were a lot different this time around. 
I had five long haul flights in which to watch a number of films. Look, let me just talk you through my ritual. My ritual is to take off my shoes, cover my legs and feet with a blanket, put a bottle of water on the floor, ready to go. I then fill out my departure card immediately so I don't have to worry about it later. I used to have a whiskey or two on flights to kind of make me sleepy, but in later years it just really made me dehydrated. So something I have now is tomato juice, which my lovely wife introduced me to. And I never knew how amazing it is with a little bit of pe- uh, a little bit of pepper on it. I really love pepper. It's almost like having like a cold tomato soup. Um, You're smart, man. I yeah, like this. It's really good. Look, the first thing I do is I search the movie list on a plane as soon as I get on board. Sure. Usually I make a mental note and start ordering the films in my mind. My wife and I occasionally watch the same thing, but not often as I usually end up watching some boneheaded American comedy or catching up on a superhero film, neither of which that um, she really wants to watch. Yeah, I find flights the best time for those sort of things. Yeah, exactly. And they're, they're, they're not normally things I watch. Um, as anyone who listens to the podcast knows, I generally um, kind of steer clear of superhero films unless I hear real good hype about them. So, you know, uh, Captain America, Winter Soldier or Civil War, people talk about it enough and I'm like, okay, I'll check those out. But, you know, I'll catch up on anything on a flight, basically. I mean, International Flight is the sole reason I've seen three of the four Hunger Games films. <laughs> <laughs> Ironically, while I'm stuffing my face and heavily processed airplane food, which I always get in advance because I'm one of those annoying lucky people who get served a special meal in what feels like half an hour before everyone else. Um, then the problem is you've finished your meal and you're sitting there with your tray and they're not going to clean up for another hour. So yeah, there's a downside to it. You put it, eh? Yeah. All that rubbish, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Look, first flight was Auckland to San Francisco. Uh, it's about a 12-hour flight, and I watched Guardians of the Galaxy 2. I did the Empire Strikes Back route of splitting up the heroes into two factions for most of the film. Uh, the worst off with this, surprisingly, is Star-Lord, who does little except skywalk around Dagobah or wherever, whatever his um, father's planet is called. Uh, his long-lost father is called Ego, so you know there's no, not going to be any problem there. Um, as Ego, Kurt Russell is a welcome presence in the film. Uh, good chemistry with his co-stars and nailing the right tone and along with Michael Rooker's heartfelt performance, the two elder statesmen come off best. Uh, Saldana's Gamora fighting her sister providing the most engaging action sequences. Look, the first film was a surprising burst of energy, colour and fun, even if I wasn't uh, convinced with the final act. Those aspects, they're all on display here, but no one here is convincing. Uh, even the first film's MVP, Raccoon, uh, Rocket, you know, Rocket Raccoon, whatever his name is, um, becomes especially annoying, kind of doubling down on his one-upmanship to reach a cliche life lesson. Uh, while um, Batista's Drax is almost played strictly for laughs. Yeah, they're really wasting that character. Yeah. You know, by, by doubling down on laughs from they're really ruining him. Yeah, but probably because, most tellingly, the character is kind of in on the joke this time. And that sense pervades the whole film for me. It, it's fun, but you'll feel it straining to make it so. You can kind of just, I don't know, I can just kind of yeah, feel Yeah, I, I did, I did not care for this greatly. Uh-huh. No, yeah. no, I found it a little bit um, into that word disengaging as well. It had flashes of good moments, and um, but, but I just, just felt a little bit more forced this time. The humour didn't land as much. But it was very Empire right from the get-go. I was like, whoa. If Force Awakens is a new hope, then this is pretty much Empire Strikes Back. Yeah. Um, the, the opening fight scene is fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was really yeah. engaged with that. I loved that. But then flying away was like, oh, this is basically, um, you know, the escape was, oh, this is just the Millennium Falcon through the asteroid field. So waking to breakfast and the good news that um, I was heading in towards San Francisco in just over two hours, I kicked back and watched The Great Wall. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay, cool, cool. All right. Yes, Matt Damon's experiment in the white saviour narrative 
was a tougher sell on the back of you know seat 47b screen than it would have been in like imax or whatever yeah director zahang yimo who did such superlative work with raise the red lantern and hero he's just hampered by a disappointing narrative forgettable character and he just refuses to play genre conventions with anything other than the straightest of bats uh, but he is aided by an often dizzying special effects especially in the initial defense of the wall replete with bungee jumping infantry who stab invading monsters with long spikes but it's, it seems like a very cool yet massively inefficient use of resources and tactics like they just get massacred and you're like how are you doing this every time that you have to repel someone surely there's easier ways than this but maybe that should be laid at the wall's chief strategist's feet played by a movie star and all-round chinese pop culture icon andy lau who i suspect would have made a better lead than matt damon in this film right um who just looks weirdly out of his comfort zone and his time in the great wall like i don't know what it is with damon in this i just don't believe you for a second yeah in history yeah at all we talked about Kiefer sutherland being in something and i'm like i don't buy that guy being in history yeah, yeah, that uh, yeah, that was when he was a Roman soldier in. Um, yeah. I'm trying to remember the film. Yeah, um, Pompeii, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Uh, it's difficult to buy him. Damon, the same. I yeah, Damon, and I don't know. I, I don't know. It, it's it's a it's an intangible thing. I mean, for some reason, I buy Russell Crowe and you know, in, in ancient Rome, you know, yeah. and Joaquin Phoenix as the emperor. Yeah, I, for some reason, I yeah. buy that. But there's just something about Damon. I'm just like, no, I'm not buying for a second. Yep, agreed. Um, yeah. After some glorious days in one of the finest cities in America, we boarded our flight to Milan via Frankfurt. Uh, on the way, I watched just two films, Danny Boyle's film Steve Jobs, which was a succinct work, starring two excellent performances from Michael Fassbender and Kate Winslet, particularly Winslet. Um, even if those performances can't get out of the way of Aaron Sorkin's often overbearing dialogue, just an avalanche of it, uh, the construct of the narrative occurring in the hours before three of the biggest product reveals in computing history means everything is like always on the cusp of crisis. And Jobs himself questions why every time he's about to present the largest launch of his life, everyone he knows has to stop by to tell him how much of an asshole he is. <laughs> Speaking of assholes, the other film I watched was The Boss Baby. Oh, my God. <laughs> a dictatorial baby with the smooth-talking voice of Alec Baldwin. Seems like a good gel. But the film has a lack of charm and really isn't anywhere near as clever or involving as it should be. I think this is a DreamWorks film, and it just really shows Pixar has the market cornered on yeah. smart, engaging films, of you know, animation films. And while Boss Baby raises a few chuckles, even with its inevitable Glengarry Glen Ross references, while Coffee Maybe forecloses, this won't be getting any caffeine as it starts off relatively strong and just drops off as it goes on, especially right. towards the end. Um, hell of a choice, man. Yeah. So then Frankfurt to Thailand, uh, after a magical wedding spent with, among many others, my illustrious co-host here, what better way to jet off to a honeymoon in Thailand than by watching a romantic comedy? Uh, that also happens to be the second best reviewed film of the year after Get Out. And this was The Big Sick, Kumail Nanjiani. It's a very relatable presence throughout. And Ray Romano and Holly Hunter excel as the wounded parents of his girlfriend who has also fallen into a coma. Uh, the Big Sick is a nice, pleasant, amusing, and sometimes moving film. What it isn't is hilarious. There are a couple of great one-liners, most tellingly a cutting 9-11 reference, that I would have been genuinely curious to watch with an American audience. Mm -hmm. But while it isn't laugh-out-loud funny, most of the time it does have you know two likeable leads in Nanjiani and uh, Zoe Kazan, and the story is an easy one to fall for. 
And so then um, I flew back from my honeymoon with my wonderful woman by my side and Wonder Woman on the screen in front of me. Ah, here we go. Here we go. Simon has already reviewed this, so I won't go into too much detail other than I concur with my esteemed colleague's assessment. That makes life easy. Yeah. Okay, good. And uh, I enjoyed the lighter touches in the film. Uh, The World War heroism reminding me uh, of Captain America's debut. Sure. Uh, And the whole film sailed much closer to... Marvel's universe than anything I've seen in the DC universe. It really was an engaging film right up until that awkward last fight. I mean, I love David Thewlis as an actor, but there is something not quite right about the God of War having like an upper class English moustache, <laughs> even in mythical flashbacks. Yep, yep, yep. yep. <laughs> it's like yep. shows him banished, yeah. and he's got like this moustache. <laughs> he looks like uh, he looks like a cartoon. And I uh, rounded off the flight with uh, another enjoyable superhero film in the shape of Spider Man Homecoming. Yeah, it's yeah. pretty good, isn't it? Yeah, which it, yeah, it has a real like you say, it has a real assy and lead Tom Holland. Holding his own against Robert Downey Jr.'s Tony Stark, who, you know, seems to be reading an Aaron Sorkin script of his own every time he opens his mouth. Yeah. It seems like he's in a slightly different world than everyone else. But as you say, the real power comes from Holland's interactions with Michael Keaton. Keaton gives a performance that develops an effectiveness as the film moves on. This goes to what I enjoy about the film, the energy of the tone of the characters. Uh, because you've kind of seen most of this action before and the central villainous plot itself doesn't really go anywhere. But the characters and the humour make for fun viewing. And um, that scene with Keaton in the car, yep. fantastic. Yeah, like, absolutely. That, I... that, that was that was really nice of the director giving Keaton. That's a really great scene to have in that. It's a great film. scene, and um, I don't want to go too much into it because there's spoilers involved here. But there's there's a twist which I should have seen coming. Yeah, and did a moment before it happened, which yeah. is possibly the perfect time to that's right to realise something. And it was delightful, and of course it, it led to some great. Great interactions between those two characters. I was exactly yeah. the same. I think that moment and then the kind of 10 minutes after that mm. made me really, I think, coloured me falling for that film a lot more than if yep. that hadn't been there, if you know what I mean. But, but I like, like um, I said before, that Keaton's character, I understand what he wants. Yeah. It seems like a reasonable thing to want. Yeah. Which is actually surprisingly rare in these sort of films where characters yeah. have unreasonable wants I can't understand. Yeah, that's but right. But I know what Keaton wants. He's yeah. right to want it. Yeah, you, you know he's he's a villain for wanting it. What, yeah. what he goes for, but it seems un, it seems reasonable, and it's, yeah. and, and I can re- and relatable as well. That's right. You know, he's a hard done by guy who just wants a slice of the pie. Yeah, you know, yeah. He doesn't want a comment on America. He doesn't want to destroy the universe. Yeah, you know, which makes no sense to me at all. Yeah. So um, I like that about it as well. Yeah, yeah. no, I enjoyed that, and um, and I may. You know, maybe before we landed, I may have snuck a repeat viewing of Skyfall in there for the umpteenth time. But ah, okay. I'm, not, yeah. I'm, not, I'm not neither confirming nor denying that. Fair enough. <laughs> you are not to leave this house without my permission. But Baron, he is not to leave until I say so. It was entirely my fault, Baron. Naturally. And now we're on to our in-flight movie review. Yeah, a fir- uh, spoiler alert first. And so we just decided to each choose a film. Yep. And uh, review it more in depth. So look, the film I really want to focus on is King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Okay. Uh, directed by Guy Ritchie and starring Charlie Hunnam and Jude Law. The first film in the epic expanded King Arthur universe of... Uh, uh, hang, hang on, I'm just getting messages through here. No, apparently the only film in the <laughs> epic expanded uh, King Arthur universe. I don't think there's going to be any more after this. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Anyway, moving on. Look, I'm not going to go deep on the plot because you all know it, eh? It's like a timeless mythic tale. It's a story that's practically burned into our subconscious, like the fairy tales we heard as kids. But just really quickly to summarise, Uther, the King of England, defeats an invasion of Lord of the Rings Oliphants, but is immediately after betrayed by his warlike brother and his cohort of sorcerers, Moat Hags. However, Uther's son 
Arthur escapes Moses Lake down the river to Londinium, where he is raised by prostitutes and trained in the martial arts by a Chinese Kung Fu master named Kung Fu George. Eventually, he teams up with a band of warriors and a comely mage who can summon birds and giant snakes in their attempt to retake England. So like I said, you know, it's familiar stuff. Foundational mythic narrative material, really. The sort of stuff you probably read about as a child, right? It just sounds like you've just made this up on the spot. What? <laughs> that all happens. All of it. Seriously, when um, the Kung Fu guy is named as Kung Fu George, you know, I did have to laugh. Yeah. Kung Fu George. And just an Asian gentleman named Kung Fu George. Anyway. <laughs> Surprisingly, okay, this is a bit that's going to shock you. I did not hate this. Oh, yeah, a lot of the cheeky silliness of it, of it is actually quite winning. It's not the King Arthur I would have wanted. Uh, that'd be more in line with the dreamy fairy tale fogginess of John Borman's 1981 Excalibur, which I love. But that's clearly not Guy Ritchie's bag, eh? Yeah, Ritchie is more of a whiplash, tongue in cheek, uh, Maxim magazine bought to sort of life, <laughs> and, and he can direct. His style is striking and stirring. Uh, particularly in the montage of Arthur growing up. But he also has a bag of tricks, and those tricks can become kind of worn out. One of them is to tell a story by like flashing forward to the results yep. and leaping back to the characters in the present, relating what will happen. He does it like repeatedly in, yeah. in King Arthur, and he's done it before in other films, of he's course. He's done it in uh, Man, with, Man From Uncle, he did it. Sure, sure. Yeah, uh, split d- screen as well. Yeah, yeah, and he's done it in the Sherlock Holmes films. Yeah, done it in um, Snatch. Yeah. Lock, stock, and produce book. Actually, so, let's just say every film he's probably every done. Film. He maybe swept away. I'm not sure. I haven't seen oh, that. I, <laughs> has anyone seen that? I've uh, seen the Italian original, so that was oh, enough. Okay, Remember? Um, yeah, we don't need to see the remake. Um, no. Yeah, so like he's done it before, and, and and it does have that cheeky sense of fun to it, and it's fast moving, at least the first time he does it. But mm. it becomes tired. And in many ways, King Arthur is structured like Lock, stock. It's, it's a heist movie in parts, and, right. you know, getting together a team and doing a job kind of thing, you know? Vinnie Jones turn up in it? No, no. <laughs> but hold that thought. Um, <laughs> oh, no. i got to say, too, a lot of women die in this film to provide motivation for the men to do heroic things. Excellent. That's that's a good... Yeah, I'm it, a little uncomfortable with that, yeah. I've got to say, you know? <laughs> yeah, Ooh, um, that's pretty I, tired as well, right? That's pretty tired, but it also... Haven't we been doing that, like, that kind of whole history of... Uh, Possibly storytelling, but definitely a movie. Yeah, I know. And, and you know, I guess it can happen once in your film, but I, I'm pretty certain it happens about three or four times in King Arthur. Yeah. Um, I like Jude Law as the slithering villain. He's one of the more well-rounded bad guys in recent comic book style cinema. I mean, we talked about this just before with Keaton. Mm. Um, he's understandable. He's sensible at times. And he's tormented. He's addicted to being feared, which he confuses for being respected. He also makes some awful, cruel decisions, which in his mind he thinks are necessary, and which make him kind of... A tragic villain, mm-hmm. so he he's a better villain than maybe the film deserves, and mm-hmm. and and a lot of film recent kind of films like this have. You yeah, know, he's much stronger. Hunnam somewhat wilts in the shadow, much as he did beside Robert Pattinson and Lost City of Z, which was better, in which he was better in as well. But he still doesn't convince me he's like a leading man or can, can anchor a big film like this. You no. know, he looks great, but at least he's better than David Beckham. What? I mean, who the hell thought that was a good idea? David Beckham's in this film. Yeah, I mean, you, is he you playing know, Guinevere? You, you, is he? You joked about it, but <laughs> you, you joked about Vinny, but 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 Beckham. I mean, if you're going to have you know your you former soccer players or whatever, you know, you might what, as well have. What, what, who's what, he playing? Oh, he's just a, a soldier of um, oh. Jude Laws, but he has a he has some um, a scene. You know, he has dialogue. Oh, yeah, he acts he acts tough. <laughs> Does he kick anything? 
No, <laughs> no, I don't think he does. He just acts tough and surly and threatening, which is that, that definitely um, not attributes th- I would uh, associate with David Beckham. David Beckham, yeah, tough, tough, surly and threatening. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Hard man. Yeah, um, <laughs> another football hard man for yeah. Guy Ritchie. Yeah, Beckham. Beckham. Um, that's a terrible call. But look, he's only in it for one scene, so yeah. it doesn't. It, it does not. It does knock you out of your seat for a moment. <laughs> if you there are some fun effects. Uh, I dug the serpent, which is the moat hags, as I believe they're called. And the film has giant rats as well, which gave me the curious thrill of thinking that Richie was referencing the Princess Bride, you know? <laughs> uh, I really wanted someone call him, someone to call the rats the R-O-U-S's. So, so someone else had to explain that that stands for rodents of unusual size, which is <laughs> always one of my favourite gags from the Princess Bride. Yeah. Uh, but not for the first time, I would be disappointed. Look, it is better than the 2004 version, I've got to say, because I, I, I felt I, I could rag on this film, which I kind of enjoyed in parts, but... Did you see the 2004 one with Clive Owen? No, that um, is uh, Clive Owen and... Uh, Kira Knightley. Kira Knightley, right, no, I haven't. Which fancied itself as truer to who, whoever the real Arthur might have been, which struck me as a fool's errand. Yeah. And instead came across as kind of overly serious and a bit sombre and, and a bit joyless. Yeah. You know, at least this film's trying to have a bit of fun. It is a bit problematic that this was so evidently conceived as the first film in the franchise, as we spoke of, uh, because we're robbed of a Merlin a Lancelot and a Guinevere. They were oh. obviously holding th- back those characters in the hope that um, they would be in sequels, you know? Yeah. So integral to the story for me, which we now will never see reimagined. As I, as I don't know, you know, I imagine a Cockney con artist for Merlin, a beer knuckle boxer for Lancelot, and maybe a lady ninja for Guinevere. I imagine that's kind of what he was thinking. Yeah. Uh, we do get Arthur swinging Excalibur, which I at first thought was a plus five Holy Avenger. <laughs> Uh, or a Vorpal sword, maybe, you know? Uh, but which I'm now thinking might be a trusty plus four defender with some intelligence points. <laughs> uh, look, perhaps D&D nerds can pitch in their opinions on Facebook or something to see yeah. if we can debate what sort of magical sword Excalibur actually is. Let's do that. Well, we can run a poll. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'll, I'll maybe op- offer up some options Yeah, we can decide what sort of sword Excalibur is. Sounds great. Yeah. The mage in it, actually, I've discovered afterwards, The like I said, there's a comely mage. Actually, supposed to be Guinevere, but at some stage they fudged that. Right. You know, I think possibly maybe in the realization that this film wasn't going to fly. Yeah. <laughs> or, or the hope that they could reveal it at a later point. In a, yeah. But instead, she is just a mage woman, as far as I know. <laughs> uh, strange, eh? It is, yeah. yeah. So, you know, this unwieldy bastard child of Death Stalker and Snatch is a lark. Yeah. Uh, and I guess what else was Richie ever going to make? Mm uh, the longer it stays alike, actually the better, which I can barely believe I'm saying. Oh. But the closer it hues to conventional kind of action cinema and uh, the duller it becomes. Yeah. Yeah. It's obviously a failure. The terrible box office tells us that. But it's actually an interesting sort of flop, uh, one that half succeeds. And that was kind of a shock for me. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Interesting. So do you recommend checking this out? I mean, I, c- I should qualify <sighs> that on two fronts. As a film, do you recommend checking it out? And if you're a King Arthur fan, do you recommend checking it out? Yeah, I do on both fronts. Um, right. I'm not, I'm, I'm not wholeheartedly recommending yeah. it. it. It fails in a lot of ways. There's a lot that's wrong with this. And I am a King Arthur fan, and we've talked about this before. Yeah. My, that along with Robin Hood are those two sort of mythic characters that I want to see done right, and I yeah. hate to see done, done badly. And this doesn't do it right, but it does it in an interesting way, which I'm not offended by, like okay. I thought I might be. You know? Right. Um, like, I know it's not trying to be that. Yeah. So I'm not bothered that it's not in a way. If you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, I do. Yeah. Whereas um, the 2004 one's worse because it thought it was being so serious and so yeah. literal with the story. And yet it kind of just became no fun for anyone. Yeah. Um, and I've, 
and for the same, re- same reason, I've never seen Russell Crowe's Robin Hood because I fear they've done the same thing. They've tried to go, oh, what if, what if he was a real character? What would happen? Yeah. And who would he be like? And that, that sounds like a terrible, yeah. a terrible way to tell that story to me. Yeah, if you do it too earnestly, I guess. Yeah. yeah. If you try, yeah. Try, try and do it authentically or anything. Then. Yeah, and as this film proves, it's almost better to just go the opposite and just take as many liberties as you wish. Yeah. As long as you think you're telling a fun story, which this is in parts. Right. Yeah. Cool. Anyway, so that was me um, enjoying a film I thought I would hate more than I thought. Right. How'd you go? Well, I watched, uh, I, I know we said we chose one film, but there's, there's kind of two films tied together. So um, you watched a film that you thought you might not like that you ended up thinking was all right. And I watched two films that I thought were probably going to be pretty bad and I hated. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm going to sit back and enjoy this. <laughs> so... Um, on the, I think it was one of the first flights I went on. I, I had a film to send me to sleep. It was contended for the worst film I've seen in the last two months. Fist fight. Look, I knew it was going to be a tough slog, and there probably was only one reason I stuck with it, this podcast. Because the idea of reporting back on a film littered with F-bombs that had been modified from its original format um, was too good to resist. Because Fist Fight has a plethora of swear words, and every single one has been replaced by a softer ADR line. Mm. Uh, and you know, in the, in the great tradition of uh, in-flight movies, yeah. so I'm not sure there is more obvious image of selling out than Ice Cube, a man who, who in 1989, saying "Burn Hollywood, burn," looking down the camera and saying "Forget the police." Um, uh. <laughs> look, Ice Cube has—I don't know if you know the plot line of this film. Uh, it seems like a pretty thin plot line. I'm aware of it. Yeah. Yeah. So Ice Cube has absolutely zero story arc in Fist Fight. Instead, it is Charlie Day who is. Like, in spite to stand up for himself by getting his ass handed to him by Ice Cube in front of the whole school, uh, Cube is obviously viewed as a shrewd, calculating, and apparently well-rounded character as his violent anger issues are just seen as just justified and even necessary. The point of Fist Fight escapes me and is often a nasty piece of work with comedian Gillian Bell playing a teacher who spends literally every scene, and she has a lot of them, sexually preying on her students. Wow. Um, and it's done as, well, she's a female, so it's, it's okay. Right. But this film is, I just, I don't even know what it's trying to do. There's no consequences to any of this. And it's kind of like, it's seen as a good thing that these two guys have this huge fist fight and that, you know, they end up beating each other up in front of the whole school. It's seen as like a, it'll be a positive outcome. Right, it, but I did. I stuck with it solely because of the swearing, because there's a lot of swearing in this film, and every single one of them has been modified from its original. Are format. there any? Are there any uh, quite in, interesting modifications? No, there wasn't any. Yeah. They they did a lot of kind of um, yeah, forget forget yeah. a lot, you know, yeah, forget in 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 place of the f bomb. So um, yeah, just a lot of stuff like that. Unfortunately, they didn't have any like really yeah outlandish ones. Yeah, yeah. But um, as the film goes on, it, it, it honestly it becomes like nearly kind of fifty percent swear words, Man. like every line. Because yeah. it's got Tracy Morgan in there, yeah, uh, Charlie Day, uh, a lot of comedians other than you know Ice Cube and Dean Norris had a Breaking Bad. So yeah. Ice Cube and Dean Norris kind of stick into their scripts, and everyone else is just ad libbing, obviously, yeah. and they just keep saying you know dropping f bombs all the time. So uh, yeah, the second half is just you know wow. <laughs> like every line's virtually changed. It's amazing. Well, um, good on you for persevering. Yeah, well, I, I I did it for just solely for the this uh, podcast, but that kind of ties in uh, this comedy anyway. To the second one, I saw another comedy in quotes uh, that was a close second, if not topping, for the worst film I've seen in the last two months. The House, uh, comedy heavyweights Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler. Yeah, sure. 
star as parents who, in order to keep their daughter in university, set up an illegal casino in their friend's basement. It takes a premise and just goes nowhere with it. It dispenses with logic immediately, so it's kind of hard to, to criticise it in that way. But it is the central performances that are the most infuriating. It says, you know, kind of like, how's the script looking? Well, we have Will Ferrell and Amy Poehler. Why on earth would we need a script? Uh, they are just blank canvases and behave like aliens who have inhabited human bodies. Neither of the actors want to go anywhere near the straight man role, so their conversations devolve into just one deadpan, confused delivery bordering on, like, amnesic behaviour. Oh, we were supposed to save money for our daughter's education? Why didn't that occur to us for the last 18 years? I know that sounds like I'm mocking the dialogue, but I could actually be quoting it verbatim. Like, no exaggeration. That's how crazy it is. It's that well thought out. The film is absolutely... The second film I've seen in a row is just absolutely free of consequences. It drafts in a humorless Jeremy Renner to be out, awkwardly out of place as the final act mob boss. Kind of like what they did with Paul Giamatti in Hangover 2. Right. But Jeremy Renner has no ability to deliver any kind of comedy. Yeah. He's playing it like he's in The Hurt Locker, and you're just like, man, you are in the wrong film here. Oh, man. It's really weird. He's not a guy, he's not a go-to, I think, of when uh, I think of uh, comedy performances anyway. No, it's not. <laughs> not like Giamatti. I mean, Giamatti, yeah, yeah absolutely. Giamatti's got, like, range. Yeah, yeah. And Renner's does what he does very well. But it is not being like the some kind of no, you know. Look, this film, I'm pretty certain I was in a video, uh, um, in a shop a day or two ago and saw it for sale, and I was thinking, did that even hit cinema in New Zealand? I'm not sure it did. Feels very soon to be available for sale on DVD. Yeah, I'm not sure whether it hit cinema. I, I reading up on this, I did know that it um it bombed quite badly at the box office, and it was one of the lowest box offices for a Will Ferrell led film, him right, being a lead right. actor. I think it was his worst. Right. Which is remarkable because he's done a lot of films um, that you know, probably aren't this bad but aren't this high profile yeah. either. Perhaps the one bright spot in this film is Jason Manzukis, actually, who's, you know, in the uh, How Did This Get Made podcast. Maybe it's That's what I know him from. Yeah, yeah. And he's he's really he, – I like him as a – and maybe that's part of my um, bias is that I like him. But I, in this film he works because he's the lead couple's troubled but enthusiastic best friend – his wife has left him because of his gambling problem and he's trying to improve, but instead he's drawn back into the lifestyle by his thoughtless, heartless best friends who are enabling and encouraging him to sink further into gambling for selfish gain. Did I mention those people are actually the heroes of our film? Yeah. Um, Manzukas understands how to shade the scenes to move from pathos to silliness and back. Uh, a lot, hell of a lot more than Farrell and Polar do. It really is a slightly better performance than the rest of the film deserves. And I came out at the end of it thinking that his was the only character with anything approaching an arc. Right. So they they set up the illegal casino in his house. It's in his house, not in theirs. It's not in their house. No, it's in his house. Oh, I didn't get that from the trailer. No, you would not. That makes it immediately less interesting. Exactly. So he's the one with the character arc. He's the epicenter for all the action. He formulates the idea and the central premise of the film. And he is often the voice of reason as things spiral out of control. So I finished thinking, this should be the main character, right? Like, they should be the kind yeah. of wacky, like, they should have cast Will Ferrell in that role and, and, and Jason Manzoukas and someone, some other yeah. slightly B-grade, you know, lesser celebrity than Amy Poehler should be the couple. Yeah. And I just came out of it going, what? But honestly, Ferrell and Poehler are just... It's not even autopilot, like, you know what I mean? It's, it's like they did a week's worth of work, you know, five days' work or something. Like that. yeah. they're, just, they're just blasting through it. 
It's just totally kicked out, you know. Oh, I'm, it, I'm, I'm almost glad here it's as terrible as the trailer suggests. Yeah, and, and in some ways, I kind of found it more insulting than Fist Fight. Because Fist Fight is like, it's Ice Cube and Charlie Day. I don't expect anything from them, really. Directed um, by the guy who wrote Bad Neighbours and um, Mike and Dave Need Wedding Dates or whatever that one's called. Not He's that. on the roll. Yeah, and this was his first one he directed. But it's just a state of comedy. We've talked about it before. But this is what passes for comedy. Yeah. And both of them are, they're embarrassing. They're genuinely embarrassing. Yeah. These are the sort of films you watch on flights, though. Um, yeah. I, I find because, um, you, you know, comedy doesn't need to be, well, I mean, it can be, but it's often not visually exciting. And that often fits on that tiny screen well. Yeah. You know, you can follow the jokes. And so I often end up watching comedies on flights. That's why I yeah. watch the trip movies on the flights. Yeah. Because, you know. That's right. Um, which I don't want to put in the same <laughs> discussion. But I can understand why you choose chose these films. Yeah. 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 And I mean, with, with the house, I just found it embarrassing because they could easily do this film on how did this get made? You know what I mean? Like Jason Manzoukas could actually sit there and go, how did this get made? I hope he does. That'd be awesome. So, uh, 9-11. What's your stance? What's my stance on 9-11? Oh, um, it was a tragedy. I mean, we lost 19 of our best guys. So normally, like... You who listen to it, we usually do your favorite part of the show, our favorite part of the show, the Tree of Woe Tree at this of point. Um, but this time, you know, we've been off for two months. Um, there's plenty of things that have probably fired us up, but I guess the main one is the disgusting and large elephant in the room, which is everything that's happened in Hollywood with yep. uh, the sexual misconduct, rape allegations, all the rest of it, Harvey Weinstein, Kim Spacey, everyone. And I, I mean, I honestly don't know if there's much more that we can say. No. Um, about it. I mean, I don't know whether the spoiler alert is the fabric that's holding the um, society together, but basically days after we recorded our last podcast until now, all of the stuff has come yeah. out. The wine scene stuff happened, I think, maybe the first day I was in San Francisco yep. or something. Yep. So, yeah. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't know what, what more we could say, really. No, I feel the same. It's It's been almost the only news story, to be honest. Yeah. And um, I think if I had... If we had done a news segment this month too, it would have been like five words long. Hollywood is full of predators. Yeah. And that would have been all we can say. Um, yeah. And there's just nothing to take out because every one of them seems like either a shock. Yeah. You know, or, or kind of slightly expected, you know. Yeah. The Steven Seagal stuff, I was like, well, that guy, you know. Yeah. It, it doesn't shock me at all. Other ones have been surprising. And, um, but it just keeps rolling, you know. And, yeah. and, um, yeah, it's, it's, it, Quite, some of it's quite horrific, actually. Some of it's quite hard to take in. It is. And um, I guess, I mean, there's there's nothing more I can say about how horrific and disgusting and, and vile and, and disappointing and, and every, all of those emotions. And I just hope for a better tomorrow, really. I hope this, yeah. this it's happening everywhere. People are abusing their power. And um, hopefully um, that idea that if you speak up to stop it, that you'll lose your job. Hopefully that thing is going, yeah. is, is, is going to prevent this from happening that's what it was. It was about prevention. It's, yeah. no, it's not. A, it's not so much about if we punish these people or these people have to come out and say these things and be brave. It's kind of stopping that from happening in the first yeah. place, and hopefully something like that will happen. Yeah, um, it's, it's forced me to really take a look at some of these actresses who, who are involved in thinking, you know, who've been victims and thinking, man, the th things you have to go through yeah. to make it as an actress in Hollywood. Yeah, it shouldn't be part of it. You know, no. Um, it, it's just. Yeah, I mean, it, it's so tough already, and, and to have had to survive through the things yeah. I've had to survive through, it's, it's vile. Yeah. And, um, 
yeah, I have such sympathy for what it must, you know, the pressures you must be put under and the situations you have to try to survive and escape from. Yeah, yeah. not we have tried to say something, not particularly articulately in my case, but yeah, because oh. it's just kind of like I don't really know what to where to. But we also don't want to run from it. You don't want to. We don't want to not acknowledge it. So um, we realise we comment on film and. Um, yeah, we'd like to talk about kind of film semiotics and the occasional Shia LaBeouf joke, but mm. we certainly don't want to be kind of dipping our toes into the piranha pool of of, of this. But, you know, w- we have to. So. Yeah. And, yeah, like you say, it's just hard because it's ongoing as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, um, Al Franken. Um, yeah. Is, and there'll be more. And, and I think it's as sad as it is to, to know more, it's, it's good that it's being uncovered and, yeah. you know, pushed out into into the light. Yeah, and people will, will recognise that this behaviour is not acceptable in the first place because especially some of these, someone like Harvey Weinstein or or some of those ones, okay, that, you know, that's really serious and obvious, but there's, there's some of the stuff, you know, like the Al Franken or some of these other things where it, it's, it's a shaded area and and people have think that that's okay mm. to begin with or, or brush it off as like, oh, don't... You take a joke. Those are the things that need to be addressed. Like that's not appropriate. You know that does, um, and we we can all learn from that. I think. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. Someone like Weinstein's just an absolute monster, mm. and people can probably dismiss his behaviour as as being a, an abomination yeah. and an anomaly. Yeah. Um, but some of this other stuff, not so much. And we we all need to have a look at it. So yeah. Um, look, hey, on the bright side, <laughs> yes. Let, let's talk about um. One of the best things about um, traveling that I love is going to filming locations. And both Simon and I managed to check out mm-hmm. some filming locations mm-hmm. while we were traveling. So Simon, what did you see? Well, I, I've got a feeling you're, you're going to win on this because <laughs> I know I, I've heard part of one of your stories. Uh, the Treby Fountain, um, which was my probably the favorite thing I saw in Rome. Yeah. Um, there's something about coming around the corner and seeing it. And like a lot of stuff you see in Italy, it's beautiful. The form is amazing. It look the structure of it, you know. Mm. And then you get uh, as the water runs down over these rocks, there's an element of randomness to it, I guess. Mm-hmm. And it's not random, obviously. Yeah. But I love that that it's woken up from this perfectly formed thing mm. to this area of this unstructuredness almost. And yeah. it, it's stunning talking. I could have uh, that was one of my favourite things I saw in Rome. And obviously, you know, eight and a half, a bunch of other films. Uh, and also in Rome. Uh, the Mouth of Truth, uh, most famously from um, Roman Holiday, where yeah. Gregory Peck and Audrey Hepburn go in, and yeah, it's this uh, it's really ancient, actually, mm-hmm. pre-Christian, pagan, um, like a uh, model of a man's face with a mouth, and you put your hand in, and if you're a liar, apparently, you get your hand bitten off. Right. So uh, we're clearly not liars. My yeah. wife and I, we still have that's, our hands. That's great. You know, I asked her if she enjoyed our podcast. You put her hand in a bit gingerly, but you know, <laughs> she's still got it, so... Um, and, of course, in Turin, the Piazza CLN, which, Duncan, I know you've been to before. Yeah. And this was the first uh, of my movie locations that I visited. And came around the corner, and there is the statue that's from uh, Deep Red, yeah. the Dario Argento film. And I was blown away. It's exactly yeah. like the movie. Nothing's changed. And it just, like, gave me that thrill that you get of being in a place where a great movie was shot. Yeah. And that was, I guess, my first, like, moment and probably the best for me. That's great. Just because, specifically, I'm such a fan of Argento. Yeah. And uh, Deep Red is, you know, uh, maybe his greatest film. Ooh. Ooh, ooh not cool. Ooh, I've got to think about it. But, you know, certainly up there. Um, yeah. So that was probably my favorite. How about, how about you, man? That's great. Um. Yeah, well, hey, I, I I really love that from Deep Red as well. I remember walking across that a couple of years ago, and and 
um, we were going to go off and see something from Deep Red in Turin, like at the actual house, yep. um, which we were specifically going to go to. But this one I just stumbled across, and, and, and I'm just like, goodness, like, mm. this is from Deep Red. Yep. And then I looked up, and there's actually, it's all geographically correct as well. So when you look up and see where the murder takes place, it's just to your right. So it's actually there. So that's kind of, it's pretty cool. And I really yep. love stumbling across something and go, oh. And a lot of that happened in San Francisco, actually, where I was, and um, which is just... What a town to go for for cinematic locations. Uh, like the City Hall is a location where Christopher Walken sets fire to the building and tries to kill Roger Moore and a view to a kill. Um, but also the interior is used for the penultimate scene of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So you know the scene when um, Marion consoles Indy after he's furious oh, at the yeah, government, yeah. don't recognise the power, and he's going up and down those steps. That's an in, in interior there. And I was like, wow, I never realised that. Um, there's uh, Mrs Doubtfire's house is there, of course, which is actually a quite in demand. It's kind of just tucked away locations and there's a lot of people there taking photos just randomly, right, right. obviously. It hunted it out. The Jewel in the Crown is the Vertigo locations. I managed to find 900 Lombard Street, which is Jimmy Stewart's home in it. Yep. Um, and you can see the famous Coit Tower from it. Uh, and Hitchcock is rumoured to choose it because, you know, he wanted a phallic symbol in the distance. Yeah. And of course, there's Fort Point where Kim Novak jumped into the San Francisco Bay. But right next to that, there's also... Uh, a fight scene from um, Dark Passage, the Bogart, yep. Lauren Bacall noir film from the 40s. The film right there. And uh, so you just keep stumbling across all of these places that are, all these films are, you know, Washington Square where um, Scorpio Killer shot up, you know, a victim. Mm. And of course, it's Union Square where um, the conversation was filmed, like the part where they're recording uh, Cindy Williams and Frederick Forrest walking yep. around. Uh, part of the birds is shot there. We were staying literally, you know, kind of 100 metres from there. I want to check them out. I haven't seen any of the new Planet of the Apes films, any of the last ones. You know, nor have I, eh? Yeah, and a lot of them are shot in San Francisco. And in fact, one was shot literally on the street we were staying on. You could see our hotel, and obviously it's all, you know, grass. You know, it's kind of got grass and vines. You know, just this post-apocalyptic wasteland kind of thing going on. But yeah, I was like, wow, that's right there. And where we were staying as well, there's an alleyway that our basically we overlooked. And that is in the book of Maltese Falcon. That's where um, Miles Archer, who's Sam Spade's uh, partner, gets killed. And they've got a little plaque there, and it says, uh, in this alleyway, Miles Archer was done in by Bridget Shaughnessy. And nice. um, yeah, and it's, it's really nice little places like that. My wife and I, we visited Cafe Zoetrope, which is Francis Ford Coppola's. Um, cafe which is located on kind of the street level entrance on the bottom floor of the columbus tower it almost has like those vintage style sliver buildings that you get on the corners and it's cased in that striking copper green flat iron style it's really really striking lucia my wife and i were sitting having a nice very strong cocktail each and in walks francis Ford coppola and sits down on the table right next to us and uh, he's chatting away to friends who are dining there, and we eavesdrop basically for a couple of hours and listen to him talk about everything from like Vietnam to Trump to baseball. He had bought a baseball ground because his theory was that the future of sport was men and women competing each other against each other in sports, and obviously they couldn't do something physical like uh, you know rugby or mm. you know yeah. Things like that. So baseball was one that he thought that they would. So that was his future project. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this other guy came in and, and he was an uh, old gentleman and he was a writer. Coppola's like, what have you been up to? And he's like, oh, well, haven't seen you for a few months, but put a script in with, you know, your production company basically and they not they turned it down. He's like, oh, yeah, okay. 
<laughs> but then this guy started talking about how he had done some um, location hunting with uh, Dennis Hopper in right. 1980 for Out of the Blue. I was sitting there and I was like, I used to have Out of the Blue on like VHS that I bought from like the warehouse for a dollar or something. So I was like, I know this film. Popular had no recollection of the film whatsoever. He's like, oh, I don't know that one. It's like, dude, you'd worked with Hopper on Apocalypse Now and you're not watching his, uh, mm. his directorial um, effort. But uh, so this guy started telling the story about this girl and blah, blah, blah. And she, you know, midway through the film, she gets this dynamite. And then Coppola just stops the guy and he goes, well, how does she get dynamite? So like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, dynamite's a hard thing to get your hands on. Like a teenage girl's not going to be able to get a hand of dynamite. Well, she shouldn't get a hand of dynamite. She should get gasoline. Gasoline's easy to do if she wants to set fire and blow something up. And, and so he started changing this whole thing for this film that's like nearly 30 40 years. years. Yeah, yeah, 40 years. 30 years old. It was brilliant. And uh, I was just, blown away by that and it was great and uh yeah and, and he was talking about some actor that he uh well, i really want to know who he's talking about they used their first name but i couldn't remember and he was like oh yeah he's a bit intense and i didn't enjoy working with him kind of thing and i can't remember who it was maybe christopher or alex or someone like that so there was lots of things like that and it was just honestly it was great listening to him chat and uh we ended up having dinner there and as we left uh, uh my wife and i went up to him and said excuse me mr coppola it's like thank you very much. Uh, you got a lovely place here, and um, you know. And he said, "Looked us both. Said thank you, thank you very much. Have a nice night." And uh, but it was great. There was people coming in to the place, um, and he was sitting there, and there was this, there was this family looking at the menu, which was on this kind of podium in the, uh, in the entrance, and uh, they were looking, seeing if there's anything to eat. And he goes, "Hey, uh, where are you from?" And they're like, "Are we from Sweden?" And he's like, "Oh, well, welcome to America." And they're like, thank you very much. And then they just went back. They obviously had no idea who he was. Yeah. It was kind of like about seven at night by the time we were leaving. And I was just walking on air, basically, having a listening. I imagine. Yeah. And I mean, he, he sounded really content. You know, he sounded like a really content guy. One guy, he, he said, oh, I'm, I'm going away for a couple of months. I'm going down to North Carolina or somewhere like that. And he was, uh, uh, they said, oh, the guy said, are you going to do some work? He said, oh, I don't want to do any work. I'm just going to relax. Like I say, he's won a couple of Palm Doors. He won yeah. Academy Awards. He did The Godfather and Apocalypse Now. Like, he didn't seem like he needed to do anything more, yeah. and he was just happy to um, enjoy himself. And uh, well earned, yeah, well earned. And uh, of course, then I went to Thailand and checked out James Bond Island in Thailand, which was uh, great as a total tourist trap. You go there and you get thirty minutes, and that's it to be on this island. But a lot of it looks the same as it did back in nineteen seventy four when I was born. Right. So, um, and we, you know, we got mint weather as well. So it was. Uh, it's fantastic. It was really, really good. And I got a whole bunch of photos and stuff. So I, I did a bunch of little video um, things as well, which I'll edit and I'll put up um, links to uh, at some of the locations in San Francisco, at some of them in James Bond Island as well. And um, yeah, just because you can check it out. So yeah. Uh, yeah um, I look forward to seeing those. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and I really recommend San Francisco. Honestly, I mean, I, I've traveled to the States a number of times to right through the middle of it to both coasts and it's, definitely one of my, I'd say that in New York are my two favorite uh, American cities I've yep. been to. I haven't been to Chicago, which I'd really like to check out as well. Um, and somewhere like New Orleans, I think would be great. But of the ones I've been to that San Francisco is right up there. It's fantastic. Yep. Spoiler alert. All right. That was spoiler alert 67, which means next month is uh, end of the year and the spoiler alert annual awards. Yeah. Looking forward to it. Can't wait. Um, and we'll also, I think we'll also review the certain new Star Wars film. Yeah, maybe. Star Wars I'm excited by the Porgs. Yeah, I can't wait. They look adorable. Um, yeah, that's never backfired before. So. Yeah, and I'm genuine about that. You know, I know there's a lot of people who think, ah, oh, cute things in Star Wars films, but that little shot of Chewbacca roaring and then the little Porg going, Rah! 
I love it. Oh, well, I'm glad More someone there. did, so that's good. Um, <laughs> Make, that makes one of us. <laughs> oh, you become a poor glover. I'm convinced of it. Uh, so, look, uh, what was your favourite film of the month? It was a middling month, but I think the one that I did enjoy was Blade Runner 2049. Oh, right, cool. Yeah, so we didn't speak about it. Um, because we didn't watch it on the flight, obviously, but I did manage to. I went out of my way to go see it at the yeah. films, but I enjoyed it. I mean, the visuals spectacular, and I say it every time he releases the film. But Roger Deakins has to win the Oscar for this, and I think he will. I, I can't. I can't think of what else would would compete this time. But hey, that's just the kiss of death, right? So yeah, I um, think so, man. I think yeah, I think you should not have said that. <laughs> it's a good film. I didn't. I liked it. I didn't love it. I, I really enjoyed the end of it. I thought the kind of action sequences towards the end were really good uh intense because the first Blade Runner you know I, I love it but it's actually a really straightforward detective plot there's nothing yeah. too complicated there but it's the themes and the imagery that work whereas I felt with 2049 it still had a pretty basic plot but um it, it kind of wore its themes almost as exposition a little bit too much like it didn't have a subtlety to it but overall, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed going back into that world. Um, and I think of all the films I've seen in the last two months, it's the one that I'd probably sit down and watch again. Uh, look, for me, I really enjoyed the creepy, claustrophobic, recent horror flick, Autopsy of Jane Doe. Oh. It's really good. It's mm-hmm. really solid. I love the fact that it all takes place in the autopsy mm-hmm. room, essentially. So it's very self-contained and very small cast. It's almost like watching, you know, those moments in CSI where they, you know, you know they do the autopsy. Which yep. used to be amazed with CSI how much they got away with it. Yeah. Um, it's almost like watching one of those extended to the most excruciating um, horror movie details you can imagine. Wow. And it's very effective for that. So I, I, it's just such a clever idea. But look, um, we've both discussed this before. I can't look past the considerable charms of the big sick. Based on star Kumail Nanjani's real-life courtship, it's proof that the rom-com can still be made with heart and jeopardy, I felt. Well, that's something that's often missing. I mean, we've talked about that before, but those sort of stakes in comedies are often so low. Yeah. And I think in this film, you know, they are real, and I do kind of believe them. And also, they're not driven by external forces so much. They are really the characters having to come to terms with, you know, making decisions and how they live their life and making changes. And I like that about it. I really like Ray Romano and Holly Hunter as well. No surprises, I guess, with Hunter. Yeah. But I was in the Everybody Hates Raymond camp back yeah. in the day. So to see him in a film where I'm actually enjoying what he's doing is, is yeah. quite is quite lovely. Yeah. Um, it's just purely heartwarming. You're right, it's not a great comedy. It's not mm. hilarious. And I don't think that's the point. I think it is yeah. It is very warm and real and relatable. Um, and it left me with a little tear on the plane, too. Right. Yeah, at the end. Uh, that might also be partly because I lost feeling in my lower body um, <laughs> at that point because yeah. I was in the in the middle of the rows and I'd made that mistake of putting my bag under the seat uh, yeah. rather than in the overhead locker yeah. so I didn't have a lot of leg room and about maybe three hours into my 16-hour flight I was beginning to feel it, you know? Middle, middle <sighs> rows is just the worst. Yeah, they really are because um, you can't sort of stretch out to the side against yeah. the window can't stretch the other way. You've got to ask that person to move every time you yeah. want to use the bathroom and then you feel guilty. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, what are you going to do? 16 hours, you're going to have to get up at yeah, some point. exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I hated Everyone Loves Raymond. Yeah. I found it a grim, yeah. horrible show of horrible people being unkind to each other. Yeah. In, like, this claustrophobic house. Yeah. Um, I could never understand its massive success either. Yeah, it was kind of like um, whatever happened to Baby Jane, but a sitcom. You know, it's just like this really uncomfortable. Like, yeah. you guys need to just get out and stop Don't interacting. Don't like each other. Why yeah. are you still here? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, um, 
Oh, good stuff. Well, um, so thanks to everyone for listening. Uh, I'm sure it was a bit of a rambling episode this time, but we're yeah. getting reacquainted yeah. after a couple of months away. So, yeah, really looking forward to the Spoiler Alert Awards next month and, of course, to Last Jedi. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And um, so the song we're going out to, Simon, is... Uh, yeah, Did You Ever. So this is from High Society. Like like, like I said, I didn't, I didn't love this film, but Well Did You Ever, uh, the Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra song, is actually a bit of fun. Um, I mean, they, they did a couple of great crooners, so getting them on screen together to sing together is probably the highlight of the film. Oh, that's excellent. Um, so thanks, everyone, for listening. We will see you next month. All right, take care. Cheers. I have heard among this clan you are called a forgotten man. Is that what they're saying? Well, did you ever? What a swell party this is. And have you heard the story of a boy, a girl, unrequited love. Sounds like pure soap opera. I may cry. Tune in tomorrow. What a swell party this is. What frails, what frocks, what broads, what furs, what rocks. They're beautiful. Well, I've never seen such gaiety. Neither did I. It's all just too, too excuse, really. This French champagne Domestic So good for the brain That's what I was going to say You know you're a brilliant fellow Thank you Drink up Jack Ah please don't eat that glass my friend Have you heard about dear Blanche Got run down by an avalanche No Don't worry she's a game girl you know Got up and finished for This kid's got guts Having a nice time Grab a line Don't do math No more homemade math Got it no, no, no math, period. Yeah, because it's a gateway. It's the finish line.